All right, I'm continuing a two-part message that we started last week. If you weren't here last week, please um, go online and have a listen to that. Uh, It it really frames what we're talking about today, um, but I want to really land it in the most simple way that I can. Uh, And we're talking about Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 8, and what for me is probably the the preeminent principle of Christian life. Not, not so much the theology or the redemptive aspects, the atonement, those, the, the theology of salvation. I'm talking now about the theology of you living post the cross. Uh, even Jesus, you know, he's not on the cross anymore. We worship, we love the cross, but the cross is empty. Jesus moved on. He did the work of the cross so that there was a life. It says in Hebrews, he endured the cross for the joy set before him. There was something on the other side of it that made that thing worth it. And so we too, while we're still anchored to the cross and we'll never, it'll never get old and we'll never stop worshipping God and thanking him every week through communion for the cross, the cross was about something else and that something else is the life that we live every week. We're not supposed to be literally just handcuffed to the cross because even Jesus isn't. He's moved on and he expects us to move on with the principles and power of his Holy Spirit dwelling in us. But what we find about humanity, there's something about us that we prefer... Those of us who, just, who love God and we've given our hearts to him and want to be faithful in that, we're much more comfortable serving him than we are partnering with him. We, we, we drift. We, our bias, the gravity is relentless to pull us to being faithful people at our best. The, the poster child of Christian life is being faithful. Nothing ever wrong with being faithful. It's just completely inadequate. People post, uh, pre the cross were faithful people. It was inadequate then, it's inadequate now. Faithfulness is fantastic. It's just not what the price that the cross paid for. It paid for fruitfulness. Fruitfulness means that we abide with Christ, as it says in John 15, 5. When we abide with him, there's fruit comes out. Faithfulness was one of those fruits. But in the Western world, we've over 2,000 years, we've replaced in the end fruitfulness with faithfulness and said, well, this is what it looks like at its best. But there's so much more. There's anointing, there's power, there's all those sorts of things. So we're talking into that and we're talking about the journey that the disciples went on from working for God, the faithfulness piece, to working with God, living the fruitfulness piece. And so we saw the journey of uh, they were sent out um, with the authority to go and uh, preach the gospel and so on. They came back, had all their war stories. Man, it was awesome. You know, Jesus says, okay, time for an upgrade. Look at these hungry 5,000. They're ready for a feed. Simon and the guys go, send them away. Wrong response. You feed them and let's have a look at a whole new type of miracle where the disciples have to get involved. The people bring what they have to fulfil the agenda that God has and the very different mindset of that, the partnership principle. And what we learned last week was that what God wants done determines how we use what we have. So the, the, the priority, number one, is what, does, what is he doing? What is he saying How do we get involved with what he's doing? Then we look at what's in our hand and go, how can that contribute to that? As opposed to looking first at what we have and saying, what can I do for God with that? It's a difference between fruitfulness and faithfulness. And it's a a very fine but incredibly significant difference. And I put it in this series because very few things are more important than this in us being God's kingdom people because we are supposed to, by definition, represent what it looks like for the kingdom to get it right. We are kingdom people. People should be looking at us and going, I want the kingdom because that's what the kingdom looks like. 
But if our life doesn't look much different to anyone else's, and we're always pretty quick to say, don't look at me for a picture of perfection, I'm just forgiven, that's fine, that's, that's true, but at the end of the day, what is then the difference? What is the difference? Is it the fact that you've been redeemed? Or is it that plus the fact that you've been given the Holy Spirit to work in the power of God? And so these two issues keep coming up, primary issues. And when I say primary, I'm saying it with a lot of confidence because if I just read the Gospels, if I just read Acts, if I just read the Epistles and so on, and I said, what do these scriptures, this text, what does it highlight, what does it prioritise the most? What does Jesus talk about? What does he expect if I could put it that way, the most. What's his priority of his ministry? Was it you being a better person than you were before? It never was, was it? It was faith and following. See, just follow what I'm doing and have faith because it's going to lead you to a place where you have to live by faith, following and faith. And if we live by following and faith, then freedom is what comes in exchange for the bondage and slavery. So the problem is if we don't want freedom... And in the Western world, this can be a thing. Life's just so easy. I like my little addictions. No one needs to know about them. They're victimless crimes. Why would I want freedom from that? If we don't have that hunger and thirst for righteousness, then we won't be prepared to buy into the main game, which is following and freedom, because it's risky. It's scary. I had 20 people up on stage here last week that had the deer in the headlights. Was anyone here to see them? It was hilarious. They're like, what have I just signed up for? We just did a, a kingdom assignment exercise, where as a church, we gave away on last Sunday $4,000, $200 each as a deposit for them to go and multiply that and put this principle into action. It's been a fantastic week. You should hear the stories of what these guys are up to. There's, there, there's funds being raised for different countries. There's domestic violence being addressed. There's all sorts of very worthwhile things going on. Why wasn't it going on the week before? Because we weren't focused. The only difference between two weeks ago and one week ago was not Jesus' call on our life. It was just the fact that, tw that 20 people put their hand up and said, I'm going to focus on this. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, what do I do? It's amazing what that oh, God prayer does. Not that he listens to us more. It's just that we're listening more. Suddenly I'm following and where he tells me to go, I'm going I'm to need faith. So that's what this is all about. And so we'll find that the kingdom always boils down to these two issues of your practical Monday morning life. If it's to be defined in a Christian lifestyle kingdom way, it's following him and living by faith. They're the two primary skills. So let's move on with the context. We're now in John, uh, Mark chapter 8. Now we've, we've moved on, 5,000 have been fed, Jesus has walked on water, Simon had a go, didn't work out too well, but he had a go, bless his heart. Uh, now we get to the other side of the lake, and again, there's been 4,000 people fed this time, plus their families, we're presuming. Um, but it's a, it's a fascinating story, and so if you have a hyperlink in your Bible, if you've got a, an apple, you'll probably have a hyperlink over to John chapter 6, because chronologically, this is the moment in John chapter 6, the 4,000 get fed and Jesus is getting, in a very Jesus-like way, very frustrated. He doesn't lose his cool. He doesn't blow his stack. But he just says some very interesting things. Because he, he feeds the 5,000 and, and he goes to the people who are gathered. You, you know, you haven't come for much other reason just to get your stomachs filled. And then the Pharisees come and, and um, they say, they've just seen the, the 4,000 be fed. They were, some of them were there. 
They turn up and go, by what authority are you speaking? What sign will you give? Moses gave us manna in the, in the, in the desert. And Jesus is probably going, I just fed 4,000 people in their families. You, and, you, and you want another sign like Moses who fed them in? Like, where's the disconnect here? When are you going to stop demanding of a sign? And he gets pretty cranky now. He starts to go, well, I'm not going to give it to you. I'm not going to give it to you because you're not seeking a relationship with God. You're seeking some sort of religious bona fides, and I'm, I'm way beyond that. I want to invade your life, and I want you to be seeking me relationally, not placing expectations on me as if I've got to jump through your hoops. Let's remember who created who here. And sometimes that reality check's not a bad one to have, but it was too much for the church in that moment. There were hundreds of disciples back then. And suddenly they're going, they're saying things like, this is a hard saying, don't like that sermon, Jesus. And he just, he just amps it up. He goes, well, if you want to follow me, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. How about that? He didn't, he didn't do what Sandy just did and explained that they're representative of the Passover lamb and the body that's being broken for the redemption of their sins. And he didn't even go there. He just said, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want communion with me. How's that looking for you guys? And then they're all scattering. And it gets down to 12. And one of them is no good. And Simon just goes, where else am I going to go? Because Jesus confronts him. Are you guys going to leave too? And you're going to see their minds bending as they go, I don't know. I don't get what you're saying, Jesus. I don't get any of that. All I know is that I know you. And where else am I going to go for the words of eternal life? And Jesus just goes, you would never have thought of that. That's a great saying. Mark that one down. So it's a really incredible moment. It's polarizing. From that moment on, it got really hard for them. But Jesus wasn't compromising on any of it. And so we see them then, just with all that sort of context, uh, get into the boat. But I really see myself in this moment because... They've seen 5,000, they've seen walking on water, they've seen 4,000, and how quickly we forget. And what happens next is this almost embarrassing moment. I, I want to get embarrassed for the disciples, but unfortunately I get embarrassed for myself because I read the next bit of logic that they came out with and I think this is the way I pray, pray some mornings as well. I forget these highlight real moments of the incredible miracles because I want God to do it again. I want him to do it today. You know, I want, I want all that stuff. And I say, can you do it again? Can you do it again? Or I forget that and I go, is it even possible that you do stuff? Or you might go further and further down that and you forget things because faith leaks. Unbelief is contagious and so is belief. So is faith. And these Pharisees have just worn these guys down in such a short period of time and they're, they're losing their belief. And we lose our belief if we're... This is why these days are so important for us because worship and praise and hanging around people who've got faith, it builds our faith back. But if we lose that, we, our, our soul atrophies back into unbelief by default and we forget what it is to believe and rely on and we forget the things that he's done and we may even find ourselves deconstructing our faith because we haven't seen God do anything for a few weeks or months and we, and we forget all those things. And we start saying things like, are you even there? Are you real? Or if you are, do you do things anymore? I see you doing miracles in everyone else's life, but this situation of mine is probably too complicated for you. I've got to take reins and do it in my own strength. And we start seeing all these unbelief systems coming out of our psyche and our mind and our prayer life becomes framed by this stuff. And what's happened is faith has atrophied into non-existence. And this happened within hours 
for these guys. So take heart. It's, it's not okay. Jesus never condoned unbelief, but it's understandable. These guys copped it. So here we go in, in Mark chapter 8, verse 14. They, they get back into the boat to go to the other side. They're sort of worn out for ministry. They've done it. And it says, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. Of all the things to put in Scripture, of all the things to focus on right at that moment, 5,000 fed, 4,000 fed, 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 the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. Who cares, man? Like, bread can come from anywhere, except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Now, Jesus' response is the same response that he'd probably give to us these days. Like, I'm the positive God loves us. He's speaking identity, destiny, the whole thing. But there are certain things, I won't say it ticks Jesus off, but if you want to hear his, his, his voice of, of discipline, this is what it can look like. Be careful. In other words, that thing you're doing, mm, that's not the way I want it to be. Be careful. Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. So remember the context. They've just had a big stoush with the Pharisees and he's lost half the crowd or more. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. So Jesus is looking at them, worrying now because they've only got one loaf of bread and 12 guys, forgetting the five and the 4,000. He's seeing that logic and he's saying, that logic that you're doing now, Pat, that logic where you prayed last week and you forgot the miracles and your logic was based in what I haven't done, not on what I can do, Pat, watch out because what's happening there is the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And leaven meaning is permeating um, uh, way of thinking that it's a, we call it a paradigm, a worldview, a habit of rationale and logic. It's permeating everything that you think, everything that you do, and it's not what the kingdom would have you think. This pervasive culture is saying, and he, he brought the parallel there with the Pharisees and of Herod. So, Let's go there for just a moment because we would still suffer the same thing and we have other leavens as well that affect ours. We have leavens of materialism. Um, And I I could go on there, but he talks about uh, the Pharisees and of Herod. So the leaven of the Pharisees, so a mindset, a permeating worldview. In Luke 12, 1, uh, Jesus is very clear on this one. And I have heard quite a few messages on the leaven of the Pharisees and it it's very easy in these instances to say what a scripture isn't saying. Oh, it's talking about religiosity. It's talking about judgment. It's talking about all these things. But Jesus was pretty clear on this one. Luke 12, 1, he said, the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So he was saying, now, guys, you're complaining about one loaf of bread. That is the leaven of, her- of, of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In other words, you're, you're, you're espousing one standard publicly but privately, there's a whole other value set and logic and rationale that you actually believe. You're, on Sunday, you're doing this. On Monday morning, you're doing that. On Sunday, your hands are raised and you'll sing God's glory. You'll say, amen, God can do anything. But on Monday morning, when the church, when the, <laughs> church politics, when the work politics is, is hemming you in and you won't be promoted and you haven't got enough money and your relationships have broken down, all the stuff that all of us live, on Monday morning, there's a, there's a hypocrisy about the mindset. This is what Jesus is saying. You, you're doing it fine. You know the right things. On a Sunday, you're even living them out. But what are you doing on Monday? This is the leaven of the Pharisees working away. 
See, their personal life, when the pressure was on, wasn't matching up. What the, 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 and I won't even call it a facade because it was the real them. What they did in feeding the 4,000 and 5,000 and Peter walking on water, that wasn't a ghost. That was really them. They were doing that. And it's like myself. I turn up and this is really me. It's, it's, it's the same me that turns up on Monday morning. But there can't be an incongruence about that. Thankfully, I'm married to a woman, bless Trisha's soul. From the day we got together, there was just no way known. And it's been my saving grace in ministry. If I did or said anything that contradicted what she saw on Monday morning, she'd be standing up and getting on stage and saying, don't believe that word. That's a bad word. It's kept me incredibly honest. I mean, I'm a fairly honest guy anyway, but I tell you, you have a wife like that who's got a gift of discernment, who just smells trouble a mile away. It keeps you honest. It's fantastic. It throttles your life because it, it, it throttles you. It stops you behaving externally in a way that you know people might reward or expect, but that life is always going to crash back to the point of your inner character at some point anyway. So you may as well just refrain and keep your outer life looking like your inner life. Don't do on Sunday what you're not doing on Monday. That's what Jesus is really saying here. That's tough. That's a tough word, Pat. Don't like that one. I don't like it either, to be honest. I could have been a I was going to be a mad Pentecostal. I don't know whether you realise this. I'm, I'm, they call me Placid Pat now. But um, there was a time when I was Penty Pat. And this is where Trish and I met. I was in a, we were in a, in a uh, church plant in a raving Pentecostal church and I was black guitar and pink shirts. and That wouldn't work now, would it? You don't do pink shirts. Do guys do pink shirts? It's come back twice over, I think, since then. I'm talking 84, 80-something. And uh, yeah, and uh, anyway, this was, this was just a great levelling lesson for me because I realised that the, the, the appearance of your outer world is like a very fragile paper mache sphere, but your inner core, you're the hard inner core of who you really are, there can often be a gap between that core and what you're living out and what people think you are, what they're looking at and the way you can perform and, you know, put, the, put on a persona of something that's not... You think it's a good persona, it's what could and should be, but it's not who you actually are yet. And so there's this big air gap between the two because one day, though, life will compress against you and will always distill you back to your irreducible core. Great lesson to learn in your early 20s, let me tell you. Saves you a lot of pain and a lot of other people's pain. All right. So Jesus could see this affected their logic. So that was the 11 of uh, Pharisees, then there's 11 of Herod. Now, we, we really, we just don't know. He doesn't flesh out what the leaven of Herod is. We do know that King Herod was, uh, he was, there's no great way to describe Herod. He was a despot king. He was known as quite possibly the most evil king um, in history. What he did, he, he killed so many of his own family. Uh, he was a politicker. Uh, he was a man driven by a shadow mission, which is a whole term we need to unzip another day. But he was he was leader of God's people, but he was a godless person. He'd done it man's way. And so uh, it was like, get my way at any cost. And so anyway, Jesus says those two leavens are working together in this mindset. So they're combining hypocrisy with um, politicking and ambition and manipulation, this sort of thing. But Jesus could see how it was affecting their logic. So we pick it up in verse 16. So Jesus has said, don't, don't let the leaven get to you. And they've they go and they discuss this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. It's like he's saying, it's not because you don't have no bread, it's because you're thinking wrongly. And they're, you know, they're losing it. And Jesus is like saying, I'm going to ignore that you said that. Let's just get back to the point. 
Aware of the discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about it? Like literally, why are you talking about having no bread? Pat, why after being a Christian for nearly, how many years is it? Nearly 40 years. It, it is. It's 40 years I've been a Christian now. Why are you still talking about what you don't have? Why are your prayers coming from earth to heaven, coming from lack where there is no lack, coming from problems to where there is peace and trying to convince heaven to hear your cry about where there's lack instead of coming from up there where we're called to be seated with Christ. Why are your prayers not coming from there, praying into what's down there? This is why he told us to pray. As it is in heaven, let it be on earth. Why, how am I, after 40 years, still inverting this? It's really simple. As it is up there, Lord, bring that down here. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's the posture of prayer. The intercession is not me complaining to God about what's wrong down here. It's about saying, Lord, what are you doing? What are you saying up there? Father, let it rain. Let it pour down, down here. And so these two critiques, he goes, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? And these are the two critiques that we often see. We, we, we've said that following and faith are the two big deals. And so we see the critique here. Why do you not see what I'm doing? Why do you not believe? Still, after all that. And our prayers become focused on our, on our one loaf. And I want you to really, I guess, have a think about your prayer life at the moment. Is your prayer full of tears and anguish and problems uh, about your one loaf? This, this, this lack that you have, 12 people, one loaf. You know, are your prayers coming out bleeding about what's wrong or assuming what can be right? I'm stuck in this miserable job. I've got no prospects. I, need a, I deserve a better circle. I'm years behind where I should be in life. Look at my life. It's a, it's a mess, you know, and it's coming from my one loaf. That's what he's talking about here, and it frames your prayer life. But Jesus says, why do your prayers and thoughts focus on what you think you don't have? Why do you still complain? Why are you worrying? Do you not believe I'm bigger than all this? Do you not understand after 5,000 and 4,000 and walking on water, I can do and I do do anything? Stop taking this thing into your own hands and stop worrying about what you've done wrong as if it limits what he can do. This is a massive mind shift. So he fleshes it out. He uses a bit of simultaneous equations. Anyone remember that in math? Um, I've got a bit of an engineering. I love simultaneous equations. Algebra is just my thing. You know, I love it. Actually, I had to get some help this week from Liam, our, our youth pastor, because he's a mathematics sort of genius. And I said, mate, I'm struggling to, to, to frame this. I was going to put up on a whiteboard what Jesus does with simultaneous equations. You know, this plus this times that divided that to pi to the tenth equals x plus five resolve for x. I said, Liam, do me, do me a, we're going to do a resolve issue. And he, before I even put it up, he said, in, in, in nice terms, you're an idiot, there's too many variables. You can only have one variable if you're going to resolve for x, you know. So, the, the, so I, I, I whittled it down and here's the simultaneous equation. This lot equals this lot. You should be able to distill that to find out what the factor is. Five loaves, Jesus says. So Matthew 19, when I broke the five loaves, five, for 5,000, so that's like one loaf per thousand, how many basketfuls did you pick up? 12. Okay, so 
Five loaves divided by 5,000 plus X factor, which is Jesus, equals 12 loaves. Get the logic of that? Okay, we could solve for X here. But when I broke the seven loaves, okay, on the other side of that equals seven divided by 4,000 times X factor, how many basketfuls were left out? Seven. Like, no, no. That logic, you, you can't solve that equation. That equation makes no sense. There, there is no continuity there. You can't resolve for the Jesus factor there. And that's what you and I, we want to do that because that's where we live. We live in an age of reason where we can't find peace unless we understand what's the X factor here? What's the formula here? Jesus, how do I live this life and know that if I pray a prayer, you're going to answer it because I've done five loaves, 5,000 people, 12 basketfuls. Jesus, you just do the X factor. And he's going, no, it doesn't work like that because you don't need faith or following to do that. You'll just apply the formula. So let me break the formula in your life. It doesn't work out. The logic just doesn't work out. And that's actually the point. He's saying there is no formula. It's following and faith. See, abundant provision in our lives isn't a product of, of, of the loaves and fishes. It wasn't reliant on them. They were invited to play a part in that. That, that stuff that you bring, your money, your time, your, your worship, all that sort of stuff, God's blessing is not a product of that. It's not a reciprocal arrangement. It's not cause and effect. It doesn't work like that. You can't manipulate God by how we believe he must work if we, if we stick to a formula. Abundant provision is not a formula you can work to. It comes from following and faith. So you, you, you can start to hear his logic as you read the Gospels. Jesus would say, well, you feed them. Here's what he's saying. Follow what I'm saying. We're going to feed the crowd now. Now, if he hadn't have said that, if he hadn't have said you feed them and we apply faith, without following his command, that is assumption, right? So here is one of the big principles in here. Following and faith are the big deal. Assumption does not equate to following. So if he hasn't told us to do something, you can't have faith that he'll do it because he'll only do what he said he will do. He'll only act in accordance with who he is, not who we want him to be. I can't name it and claim it. I can't say I deserve it, therefore it will be. It's, Lord, what are you doing? What are you saying? And this is the skill set of the disciple, to hear what he's doing. He will always commend faith, but faith that comes from following is better. Remember when Jesus was on the top of the temple and Satan said, jump off? Now, obviously, Satan quoted correctly, angels will catch you. So Jesus could have had faith at that point, but he said, no, that's assumption. Don't put God to the test because God hasn't told me to jump off the darn wall. So why would I do that? Because that's putting God to the test. So we don't arrogantly say God will do this because I have faith for it. That's assumption. And there's no, there's no obligation on God's part to meet us there. The crazy thing is sometimes he does, especially when we're young in our faith. He, just, he does things. But, but we can't hold that to a formula. We can't just say I have faith and God will do it. You have faith in what God has said through his word, through his prophetic word sometimes, uh, and faith in who he is. In John, the Apostle John says, we know and rely on the love of God. We can have faith in who he is. It's concrete. Even if he says nothing, I have faith in who he is. He is love. Or I read his word and I have faith in what he has said. I rely on it. So it's not assumption. So he would say things like, 
Simon, come and walk on water. Or at the 5,000, you feed them. Mary said at the wedding, his first miracle, Jesus wasn't going to do anything. She knew the formula in that sense. She just said, do what he tells you to do. If he doesn't tell you to do anything, don't do anything because nothing's going to happen. And he said, get the jars and so on. So what happened? They followed what he said and then they had to rely on him to fill the jars. So our life is following what he said and then working really hard? No. We bring what we have. What did they bring with those jars? They brought jars. The jars were full of water. The jars weren't full of wine. We bring our life and what we bring can do nothing, but they're just, it's, it's a jar for him to fill. It's very different to a works mentality. We're following and our faith says, I'm going to create a space in my life that requires God to fill it. That's what spiritual disciplines are. If you don't know about spiritual disciplines, we're going to teach you into them in the, in the new year. Um, the frameworks, the jars in our life that we can create that invite God to fill them in faith. Powerful, powerful stuff. Jesus himself said, I only do what I see my Father doing, so I follow, therefore I can live by faith. This is a huge deal. Can you see how the priority this must be in our life to learn the art of following? And um, on the 11th of October, Tuesday nights, we're going to create a room that does that. So we're creating our own jar space. Sundays are, are, are like that. They're a space where God works. But Tuesday nights, the 11th of October from 7 p.m., we're going to run through the term uh, until towards end of November, sanctuary nights where we're going to workshop this. How do we listen to God? What are the languages of God? How do I, how do I have accountability around interpretation? How do I apply the prophetic word and so on? So we're just going to workshop all that. Okay, following and then faith. Uh, faith obviously comes from hearing, hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 6 is crystal clear. If you want to hear what God is saying, know what God has said. Bury yourself in his word. So what does faith look like in this partnership principle? Well, remember the principle says what God wants done, so I'm following what he wants done, determines how we use what we have. So today is one of those spaces. Today, my goal here is not to give you information. My goal here is to create a space, as with every Sunday, where it's catalyzing your thoughts and your heart to go things like, what is my one loaf? And God, will you speak into that? So we're creating a space that God can fill. The kingdom assignments that we started last week, uh, with all that mission work that's now been activated, it's creating a space intentionally that that God can fill it. And I'm hoping it creates an example um, that we can do it without $200 from the church. For you personally, what does it look like? What, what is your one life? What, what is your mindset? Perhaps God's calling you to invest in, and I rattle this cage all the time, invest in one person. The greatest missional thing you can do in here right now, activate this, is today before you leave through those doors, ask God to show you who can I bless today, who can I meet, who don't I know that you'd like to touch, and just meet one person that you don't know. Just spend a couple of minutes with one person that you haven't met before. Reach your hand out and listen to their story just for a minute. Maybe invite them for a coffee. This is creating a space. Destinies are formed in those moments. They literally are. Our welcoming team is one of the the most magnificent ministry opportunities in our church if you want to get involved. It's when someone meets you at the door and they're friendly and they remember your name next week. That is life-altering in your direction. has been for me so many times. Don't care what the preacher says, mate. They were nice people. You know, and it's, it's important. So please do that as, a, as a, a work for God today. In faith, reach out to someone you don't know, even if we're all introverted. But it might also mean that I invest in the church. Um, 
God, the body of Christ here with my time and my talents, my treasure and so on. We can't do anything without that. We'll never be able to have enough staff to do what the church requires. It's not supposed to be that way. We need your time and your treasure uh, and your talents plugged in to do this work. So these high points of our life, and, and this is, I, I get a bit wound up in this, you know, I, I want to apologise, but I can't. It's just, it's just important. These loaves and fishes moments, we don't have them every day. We don't often see people walking on water, you know. But we've all got our moments, hopefully, where we remember. And so the lesson from this, one of the big ones is to remember. Don't allow your faith to atrophy down to zero again, where we question what he can do, what, he, what his will would be to do. Use that highlight reel of your life. Write it down if you need to. The times when God's spoken to you and guided you in your life and put it in your Bible to remind you. Because when we're confronted with our, our one loaf days, our one loaf seasons where we look at what we have and it's not enough, we, we must look at them through the leaven of the kingdom. Jesus said the leaven of the kingdom is a mustard seed, smallest of seeds, that if we water it, God grows it. And we water it by remembering Jesus. And I haven't preached into this verse. He said, do you not see, do you not hear, do you not remember? We water that seed of the kingdom in our life. So Jesus invites us to a world that's not based on our one loaf. I wonder what your one loaf is today. I wonder what your thing is. Perhaps you're already there and you're doing this, but um, for, for the two of us, me and someone else who, who have to grapple with this all the time, what is that one loaf that's defining your prayer life? The one life principle that's just saying, God, don't you know I don't have enough? Rather than saying there's more than enough, what are you doing? What can I do with my life to join in with that? He can do anything and he does do anything. Our role is to follow and to believe, just believe. That's all he asked of us. In John 6, those same Pharisees came to him. What is the work of God, they said? You know, because they're works-based. What's the work that he requires? Just believe, he said. It's so simple, but it's so hard, isn't it? Because we can't control him. And that's the point. So it needs faith. Faith. Let's pray together. Lord, I just really pray as we invite you into this space now. Lord, what is our one loaf that we're worried about? Maybe it's a lack of relationships that you know I need. And he does know you need them. So he will meet them. What you need, he will give. You can take it to the bank. What you need, he will give. Do you believe that? Your circumstances might say the opposite for a while. But his grace is always sufficient. He always has enough. He always gives enough. And then more. What's your one loaf today? Is it your frustrating workplace? Is it your house that needs doing up or your car that's breaking down? Is it that person who's just annoying in you and you think, I can't move on until that person leaves? Maybe that's your loaf. God, will you get rid of them? God, will you do this or that? He says, how about I give you all you need to overcome right there? What's your one loaf today? So Lord, I pray that you would invert our vision Invert our vision, Lord, that we wouldn't be looking from earth and trying to bang on the door of heaven about it, but we'd look at what heaven is doing and call it down.
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us the faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you.